Saint Amand has one of the coolest careers I've heard on this podcast. So I will do my best to try and encapsulate it all in this short intro, but I know it doesn't do it justice. He was a semi-pro kicker. He once quit his B2B job to try and win in his fantasy football league. He's authored two books, and he's worked at renowned agencies such as Arnold and Crispin Porter Boguski. Mark even co-founded Boulder Creative and Strategic Boutique Agency Grenadier in partnership with Kansas City Agency Barkley. Oh, and he's worked with Peyton Manning, Drew Bledsoe, Gary Payton, Roy Williams, Steph Curry, Gary Sheffield, and the band Rush. So keep listening if you're interested in any of those names I just mentioned, or if you're interested in sculpting a long creative career led by passion. For more info on Mark and to see what he's doing now, head over to our Instagram at entering ad we've included his links that you've got to see so this is the breaking and entering podcast and i am your accomplice gino shelver kick it mikey hey mark thank you for joining the breaking and entering podcast um, I know super excited to have you. You have a exciting long career going on and you have some big news recently. Uh, didn't you just accept a new job? I did. It's, um, you know, it shows how excited I am for it. Uh, cause I, I would rarely announce a, a freelance gig or a perm. It's, it's sort of permalance, but it's with DraftKings, um, in Boston and considering my, kind of branding meets sports nerd background. It's kind of the perfect storm and kind of perfect for me anyway, sort of a, a career, I don't want to say culmination because I'm not ready to stop yet, but um, it's, it's sort of a perfect spot and brand for me at this stage because it, it combines really my love of branding and sports and, and sports books and fantasy sports. And it's sort of the perfect storm. So uh, it's going to be a fun, a fun uh, ride that will, who knows, might go full time. We'll see, but it's, yeah. uh, it's going to be great. Well, I, I mean, I, I think you've made it pretty clear about your brand. You're kind of like this sports lover. How would you describe your brand? You have 30 years experience um, in the ad industry. You're in Boulder. So that outdoor area, those outdoor exercises, I'm sure that you love. And um, you're, you're a creative director. You've been a creative your whole life. So what is your personal brand that gets that separates you from uh, the other industry fellows? Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if it separates me necessarily because I mean, there are just so many amazingly talented, smart men and women in this business who, who offer, you know, uh, just a whole plethora of different skills and experiences. I, I, I think for me, it's still 30 years in loving to be in the trenches, sleeves rolled up, making and doing and writing and, and, and optimizing and improving work. And, yeah, I, I I like the managing and mentoring and kind of inspiring and sort of the, you know, the kind of ECD to CCO level stuff. Fine. I mean, that's that's I, I think I'm, you know, you can always get better at it. I think I'm always getting better at it every day. So that that element of the that level of job is is fine with me. But I also love sort of, um, you know, still being a working CD. So. I think I think what I offer is being able to kind of flex up or flex down based on what a brand or agency needs. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And you've done a lot of great work and you have, I mean, part of that um, ability to lead and to, you know, maybe work more towards the ground level, um, you know, get your hands in the, on those projects is all the experience that you've had. And, and I know we were talking a little bit before we, we uh, re started recording, but I mean, let me just, I can name out a couple of these agencies. Let me know if I missed them, but just okay. off your resume, we have Arnold worldwide. Um, that's a creative agency, correct? In Boston. It is. Yep. Yep. Um, Crispin Porter and Bogowski, Bogowski, that's Boulder. Everybody knows them. They do. Um, what's their big client right now? Isn't it Domino's or Pizza Hut? Or Yeah. It's, um, uh, Domino's is probably what they're they're best known for. Um, I had two two stints there, so I was sort of a boomerang, uh, 09 to 11, and then 2016 till um, 2019. So I've had two stints there. It was great. Yeah. I mean, everybody, that's a great agency. I, I like their podcast. I don't know if they're doing it anymore, but The Woodshed is a podcast right. that listeners might want to check out. It's with uh, one, of the, one of the founders that they do interviews in their lobby, which is cool. Um, and Grenader, is that how you pronounce it? Grenadier? Uh, Grenadier. Yeah. Grenadier. It's, um, Barkley. Yep, that's, yep. That's, that's an agency. Um, I started in 2012 with four partners and in, in conjunction with Barkley in Kansas city, which is a great agency in Kansas city. Um, so they invested in the, the five of us to start this agency. And then, you know, over the years it became, um, you know, it was sort of became more Barkley than Grenadier, which was fine. I mean, for business reasons and creative reasons. Um, and um, it's now Barkley Boulder, essentially. Grenadier is sort of a non-thing anymore. Um, but it was a great, great experience. I love the kind of startup building an agency from scratch kind of thing. It was a, it was a really good education. So did you guys have that agency? Um, did you guys up with that idea for that agency or did uh barkley say we want you to do this um here's some funding money go do your thing um no we we had the idea for the agency we were going to start with just the five of us and we had a um one one cornerstone client that would allow us to start an agency with a remotely straight face and um but through mutual friends and connections um it just sort of like you know serendipitously turned out that um Barkley wanted to have more of a Western presence. Yep. Um, we all, we all, we met up like us and, and the, the, the core leadership of Barkley met up several times and, you know, just, just great folks. And, and it really kind of came together and we all kind of a, as a, a larger group decided, look, we could do this better together than apart. You know, um, Barkley could get access to some really amazing um, creative uh, strategic tech talent here in Boulder that um, they might not be able to lure to Kansas City. And on the flip side, we got um, investment and and back office, you know, infrastructure and just support from a large established, you know, agency with a good reputation. So we didn't have to, you know, fully worry about completely losing our homes and ending up on the street if this thing failed. So, so it was sort of a a win win. And they're they're still doing great as Barkley Boulder and. You know, the five partners have eventually moved on to other things and it was sort of a win for everybody. So that's so cool. And we could probably touch upon that a little bit later. Um, yeah. But I kind of want to keep going because um, and I, I skipped over Sterling Rice Group. Um, that's also in Boulder. Um, yep. Another typical or another not typical, but another creative agency, I'm assuming. 
Yeah, it's a it's an agency that's um, um, they're kind of a hybrid. They've they've been um, around for about thirty plus years, and they, they've they've always done well in Boulder, and and they have some you know some national clients, some regional clients, and where they really excel is in um, the culinary space, food and culinary, like new product development from scratch. And what they had always tried to beef up is their their kind of go to market um, side of the house. So um, they've um, you know they, they've done well for for a long time. So yeah, it was a good uh, it was a good break after the kind of you know churn and burn pressure cooker of my first stint at Crispin. It allowed me to get my life back a little bit and, you know, uh, uh, see my wife and children again. So that, that was nice. Yeah. yeah. That's important. You know, I, I'm, I'm already thinking about that. I'm, I'm only 23, but at some point I think a, a question I have now we can just get into is, I mean, is that, I mean, especially being for a creative is the work life balance hard in those beginning years? Um, are you spending a lot of time in the office? I mean, is it as true as, you know, Mad Men and all the other cultural references uh, depicted as? Um, depends on the agency and, and, and also the market. You know, if you're, if you're a 20 something and it's your first job in, you know, New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, um, you know, larger markets. Yeah. You might be expected to, um, you know, give your blood, sweat, and tears to an agency to sort of, you know, quote, earn your stripes while you, while you actually, you know, uh, ostensibly are either single, um, unmarried, no kids, sort of unfettered. So you can conceivably put basically all your, all your free time and, 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 and effort and energy into the job. I, am I saying that that is a good or healthy thing? No. Um, but I think when you're in that 20 something stage and before you start to, you know, if, if, if it's your choice to do so, if you want to, you know, get married and have kids or whatever, I think that's exactly the time to, to really, really get after it and, and really see what type of env- environment is best for you. Cause it turns out you might not like the, you know, the total sweatshop churn and burn thing. Like, like you hear about a, a lot of, um, you know, Crispin in the old days and, and a lot of, you know, big successful agencies. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's, I've, I've gotten good over the years at, at managing that work-life thing so that work doesn't dominate. And, um, you know, I've been able to to juggle it pretty well. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, I guess, uh, one of the, a couple of routes you can go when you, if you kind of get tired, you know, find a new, you can find a new agency that kind of relaxes thing or fits your schedule. You can go client side was, which we often hear about and then something i'm not familiar with is like going freelance um Mm -hmm. what is that like being a freelance creative and you've done that for a while now you're kind of doing it right now semi-perm whatever um that so what is that like being freelance creative you know freelance is it's kind of um it's a double-edged sword because you have much more control over your free time when you work when you don't work and and you know, I, I'm I'm mostly talking in sort of a quote normal economy, which we are in anything but right now with right, you right. Know, recession and COVID and everything. Yeah. But under normal circumstances, typically you can decide, you know, how much how much generally you need to live on each month. And this goes for whether you have you know married with kids or single. You know, figure out generally what your monthly nut is, and then you can kind of take or turn down work 
you know, conceivably, um, as much as you want, you know, so it's when it's, when things are busy, when there's a lot of work, um, it's great because you do have free time. Like, you know, you mentioned up front about Colorado. I, you know, one thing I've loved about freelance is being able to get out for hikes and bike rides and and things that kind of like keep me from murdering people. Um, but, but, um, uh, the flip side is it's also a constant hustle. And if you do want to get enough work, you, you have to make it happen yourself. You have to pound the pavement, you have to do outreach LinkedIn and, and work contacts and networking and, you know, it's, it can be a real, a real grind, um, even in a good economy. So you, you have to, you know, what the, the trade-off is what you get and leisure activity, whatever else, the trade-off is you your ass to thing because, you know, freelancers sometimes get caught in the cycle of even when they're on a job, they're thinking about, oh, okay, well, what's my next job and the next job after that. And I've tried to make it like, all right, this brand or agency is hiring me for a certain reason. I need to give them the the return on investment and the respect and the dedication they deserve and are paying me for. Then I'll worry about my next job. But I understand how it's easy for freelancers to, you know, worry about what's next, what's next, what, what what's next. So that that sort of stress and worry kind of offsets the the chill casual of free time. So it's just a, a matter of how you balance it. Yeah. And I kind of, I kind of resonate with you. I think a lot of our younger audiences, when that first job that they get, when they eventually break in, it might not be their favorite job or the, their their yeah. last job, but they might be worried about like, oh, I got to get out of here. Or I, when am I going to move on or find a new position? I think what you just said is great advice. You know, just focus what you have on your plate at the moment. Um, do it well because they hired you for a reason and then your reputation will grow and other agencies will want to hire you because you're doing good work. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that goes for full-time too, obviously. Like if, even if you, you think, all right, I'm taking this job, is it the best creative agency or is it in exactly the right location or is it the right size? It might not be, but I think if you have um, accepted the job, you know, you're, you're, we're all adults. You're an adult at this point. You have to, you have to accept that responsibility. Like, all right, I've accepted this job. I'm going to do it as best I can for, you know, X amount of time that I'm here. Because if you, if you get complacent or jaded or, or sort of frustrated that maybe it's not where you should or want to be at that moment, then, then it'll show in your work and you won't be able to move on as easily because, because, um, you know, you, you won't get references. Your reputation will be a little scarred, you know? Right, right. So you, you basically want to make, make your current company do everything they can to keep you. Like, let's say you give your notice and you, you want to see them almost break down and cry that you're leaving. And right. then if you want to go, great. If it's just a ploy to get more money, fine. But make yourself indispensable. Um, you know, it, it also goes for the culture. Like if, if it's a really positive culture and people are friendly and it's a nice place to work and and you're not screamed at and it's not like a culture of fear and security then maybe that can make up for some of the other things it's it's lacking be it pay or creative opportunity or whatever so it's again it's all balance yeah and i have a lot of questions like i mean i'm curious to what the culture is like at um cpb uh cpnb i I, i've heard like great things about them like was that culture like you've been there twice you said you had two stints there did you was that for 
you know, because you enjoyed it there. They paid well. What was what kept you back and brought you back there? Um, I think a lot of it on, on well, it was sort of two again, two two stints, and they were at different, really vastly different times in the agency's evolution. Evolution. So when I came out there in, um, I was in Boston pretty much my whole career, and then we moved to to Boulder in 2009. Um, so after Arnold got a job at Kristen and you know, Crispin was still in really the, you know, getting toward the end, end of the real, you know, super famous heyday where, um, you know, it was the agency of the decade. And um, it was the kind of place where people really killed to work. And, um, you know, you went into it knowing that you were going to have to really earn it every day and that they, they, you know, from, from my experience, expected a lot more from um, every employee, every idea, every, everything you did just had to be a little bit better. Like, like, so a lot of, a lot of things I had learned or done in the previous 19 years, um, a lot of it was sort of thrown out the window and I was sort of learning again from scratch in this sort of Crispin, Crispin culture. And yeah, look, it was, it was a pressure cooker. It, it, mm-hmm. it could be a sweatshop. You know, there were times when, you know, we'd be working nights and weekends, nights and weekends on a pitch or a presentation and, and you'd shower in the, agency locker room at three in the morning and then you'd walk out someone would hand you the boards back when you took boards to meetings and you'd get on a plane and (laughs) go present and come back and do it again um while that wasn't great for work life it was really really tremendous as far as um uh creativity and energy and and just being really you know they, they have a sort of delusional positivity saying there and you really do learn that that comes in handy a lot. Like, because when something looks insane or impossible or is just like a waste of time, the Crispin vibe was always like, all right, yeah, that may be true, but screw it. We're going to get it done somehow. And nine times out of 10, it got done and it won awards and, you know, made the agency famous. Wow. Um, but like I said, the, the, the first stint, um, you know, I sort of pulled the plug on because, you know, at the time my kids were three years old and four months old and, my my wife said, like, look, I'm I was cool pretty much moving to Boulder sight unseen, but this whole single mom thing, I'm not, I'm not really digging. So yeah, sure. um yeah, so I uh, uh went went to Sterling Rice and then um started Grenadier and did the Barkley thing. That's so um cool. yeah. That is great but, but experience. Then, but then coming back for the second one, uh stint two thousand sixteen to nineteen, vastly different place. Um didn't have the the same sort of shine and luster that it used to, but that said, it was still you know it's still one of the bigger name and better known agencies and and tons of good talented people and a lot of nice people. You know that's the yeah. that that's what I think is might be a misconception about that place is that because it's so busy and so successful, everyone just must be a bunch of crazy assholes. And and I think you know like any agency in this industry, yeah, you can have some people you don't like and vice versa. But, but generally nice people, sharp people, hardworking. Um, so it was a great second stint as, as well. It was, uh, you know, it's, it all, it all just leads to figuring better. So. Right. Right. Different experiences. Like you said, how do you get hired at a Crispin or an Arnold? Well, yeah. Yeah. That's sort of of like asking like, how much does food cost? Um, yeah, Hmm. it's, uh, um, it's really different for every agency. I, I think, you know, 
I mean, it, it, well, how about Crispin to, specifically? Crispin specifically. I mean, look, it, it used to be, you had to, um, just first and foremost, have a, a killer book, a killer portfolio, a killer body of work that, that, um, if you're a student could show how you could fit into or, um, enhance what they're already doing. Sure. Um, if you're, a, if you're a current creative, it, it, it needs to be a body of work that shows like, you know, maybe, maybe you're not strictly thinking in just art director or copywriter terms. Like, you know, um, you know, Bogusky used to always say he likes to hire sort of creative mutts. And there's this sort of, you know, um, this notion that there isn't really one type of creative. So I think that like any creative that doesn't, that maybe shows in their work or in their attitude or in their interviewing style or whatever, isn't interested in being typecast as like, quote, just a copywriter or just a designer or art director. Um, so they, I just think they look for multi-talented, multifaceted, well-rounded, you know, creative human beings versus just a copywriter or just an art director. Um, you know, but I, I also can only speak from my experience and, and, you know, I, I was hired um, by Crispin cause I, I had, known some of the Crispin guys because Arnold and Crispin shared the truth, uh, American legacy, anti-smoking accounts for years. So, um, I knew some of the Crispin people, but then in 2009, it was back when, you know, Twitter was still a little, a little bit of like this nascent kind of social technology. And Bogusky tweeted that once like, Hey, we're hiring right now. Anyone looking to come out to Boulder? And I was like, I tweeted at him like, yeah, I'd like to. And then, you know, a week later I had an interview set up and, and I came out here. So, you know, little weird serendipitous things can, can help like that as well. Um, wow. So it was a tweet. Yeah. I mean that, that, that started with a tweet. And again, this is back when Twitter was still relatively new and things right. like that were kind of like revolutionary, like, Oh wow. He put a job offer out over Twitter. That's so amazing. And like, now it's like, yeah. Okay. So what? But back then it was a little, it was unique that someone who was so well known and respected in the industry just tweeted this thing out and, um, you know, use that, that platform to, um, essentially as recruiting, which it hadn't really been used much for before. Um, but you know what you, what, one thing I would say, um, maybe don't do, um, I know that wasn't part of the question, but like that. you do, like. you, you do hear a lot of stories and there are occasional success stories of like, um, creatives wanting to set them, or really anybody, but creatives especially wanting to set themselves apart with a stunt or some wacky, zany, like insane um, uh, initiative to get the attention of a Bogusky or a, um, you know, a Greg Hahn or a Chris Beresford Hill or, you know, some of these great, you know, creative leaders in the country, um, you know, Kristen Cavallo, like, like, get their attention somehow and break out of the crowd. Sure. So yes, sometimes you see a stunt like that woman in, in England who dressed up like fearless girl and stood outside of the McCann London offices and like she looked just like the statue. And they're like, all right, yeah. this is too cool. Like we, we, let's get her in for an interview. Um, sometimes those things work, but a lot of times from my experience, the ones I've seen, they come off as like a little too desperate or a little too, um, just kind of gimmicky. Yeah. And, and you don't want to set yourself apart that way. Like you don't want to be the, the, the gimmicky guy who, or gimmicky girl who is using some sort of, um, 
you know, stunt facade to make up for a lack of uh, confidence in or a lack of, you know, just sheer volume of really good work or really good thinking. So I think in the end, just trust in your work and let and 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 know that your work, if it's solid, will speak for yourself. Don't feel like you have to, you know, create create a you know um, a whole rap video on on um, you know TikTok or whatever. You don't don't no, rap. Please don't, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't send me rap videos. Yeah, you know, it's worked. I mean, some people. I mean, some do get a job at Widen for doing some rap, but like you know, I always like to wonder. All right, once they got in, how'd they do? They yeah. got in the door, but did they last? You know, so yeah. Which which is a good which I probably should ask them. What are some like general tips to not only to break in, like you just said, but you know, how do you ensure a long mm-hmm. career in the creative realm of advertising? What are some of those burnout? I know we talk about burnout in every episode of this podcast, and you know, taking breaks and setting boundaries. But is there anything that you found uh, specifically? super helpful for your career? Um, yeah, you know, I, it, it, sorry about the dinging. My daughter is texting me from upstairs and welcome to my world of homeschooling. Um, um, which I'm also balancing with work. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, again, it's all, it, this is, this is pretty, um, subjective and, you know, it, uh, the longevity of a career obviously depends on external factors as well, Mm -hmm. you know, economy and whatever. But I think in general, it is. It may seem like a, an overwhelmingly vast industry when you're first getting into it. So many agencies, so many cities, so many people doing work, so many clients and brands, et cetera. And I think once you realize how truly small and incestuous and sort of provincial the entire industry is, you'll learn quickly, just be nice. Um, just be a good person. It's a small industry. Word gets around. Everybody ultimately you know, there's a six degree sort of thing with just about everyone in the industry. So especially in environments like ad agencies, brands, whatever it is in in creative environments, it can be stressful. It can be, there can be tension, there can be conflict. And that's, that's fine. You know, I'm not, I'm also not one of those, like everyone gets a trophy, everyone hug, no matter what guys, because sometimes um, good debate and, and respectful arguing it's just going to make the idea better and make everyone better. But I think just, just, just be nice because, you know, something that used to be tolerated a long time ago, which is that sort of like the most talented asshole syndrome um, is so dead and buried at this point. You know, you used to be able to tolerate yeah. someone being a complete, a complete dick or a complete bitch. Pardon my words for, All good. Um, um, for, uh, if they were super talented and if they won awards. So yeah, okay. They could scream and be an infant, but you know what? That doesn't happen anymore. There's no more room for the most talented asshole. So I think as my advice would be as much as, as much focus as you're putting on your quote IQ, your book, your tangible writing or designing or art directing or strategy or whatever it is, keep working on your EQ because um, emotional intelligence is, is more important than ever. And it's going to, it's going to keep you in the industry longer. If let's say 20 years down the road, two equal skill sets, you and someone else, you're up for a job, Mm -hmm. the the recruiter or the chief creative officer, whomever says, Oh, you know what? A friend of mine 10 years ago said this person was a complete nightmare and a total diva. Right. And couldn't take direction and was a real pain in the ass, et cetera. Oh, and this other person, you know what? Great references, great reviews. Let's give it to that person. So 
just be nice, I think is my long-winded way, way of saying, yeah. saying that could help you. I heard a quote that your reputation enters the room before you and makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I think so. I definitely think so. Um, so you, you've had a great career. I mean, I want to just, you know, touch upon this again. Arnold Worldwide, that's owned by Havas now, Havas Group? Yes, yes, yep. Havas Group. You got CPB, yeah. uh, Sterling yep. Rice. Uh, you started your own agency, and that was wildly successful, bought by Barkley. Um, there was also a stint in your career where you said, screw it, I'm writing a book. Um, <laughs> and that, I mean, my, my guess, my question leading into that before we talk about that is Josh Allen, the truth in fantasy football. Cause I have him on my team. I've got Aaron Rodgers on my bench. Should I keep riding with Josh Allen? Uh, yes. And you should, you should trade, find, find a quarterback hungry team package Rogers. Yes. But package Rogers with, uh, let's say you need a receiver or running back. Yeah. Well then, then take, take a kind of a wide receiver two package him with Rogers for wide receiver one. Well, that's what the problem is I'm having now is, um, the guy I want to trade with, uh, his team, uh, he's doing pretty well right now and I'm trying to prove the value of Aaron Rodgers. I got to wait for him to really pop off one week. Well, I mean, what's what's popping up? The guy just threw for three hundred plus and four touchdowns tonight. Like, I don't like, know why he's pop up. Well, I think I think a lot of times people tend not to want to buy high. You know what I mean? So if 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 there's a week where Rogers, let's say next week he has two fifty and three touchdowns, yeah. still a good game. But you know what? You could still package him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, pe- people people tend not to want to buy someone coming off their absolute best game of the season you know that's right okay yeah well why i bring that up for the listeners out there obviously um you're a committed fantasy football fan but you also wrote a book called committed confessions of a fantasy football junkie that was back 2003 2004 Mm -hmm. awesome what what really prompted you to do that um Wow, I think it was uh, becoming very quickly and almost unhealthily obsessed with fantasy football. Um, you know, because I, I started playing fantasy back before it was, you know, had really exploded. It was in '98, um, you know, pre-internet. It was still the pencil and paper scoring days, and um, you know, like a lot of people, I got into it joining an office league and became really obsessed really fast. Over the first couple of years of the league, I had come close. It was like always a bridesmaid, never a bride kind of thing. And I'd never won. So coming into 2000, uh, the 2003 season, I was really fed up at having, in my mind, put more dedication and time and research and effort into the league and never having won. So, you know, I did what any normal sane person would do. I quit a six-figure advertising job to spend full time focusing on trying to win my $500 fantasy league. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, not exactly, uh, you know, not exactly uh, an ROI um, uh, rich environment. But um, no, I, 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 you know, got got permission from my wife, and I yeah, I, that's I a mystery. Work- yeah, no, I was I was working at the time at a, a now defunct B two B ad agency outside of Hartford, Connecticut, which I didn't really like very much anyway. So it wasn't sure. that hard to quit in that sense. Sure. Um, but I was like, look, I've always wanted to write a book. Um, it just so happens that I want to do this crazy fantasy thing. Why don't I chronicle this insane season, but also 
make it the first book of its kind on fantasy football. Because to that point, there hadn't been a real book on fantasy. There had been like, you know, how to win your league in five steps and like kind of technical, you know, Mm -hmm. brainiac manual type thing. But Mm -hmm. there had never been a book on the hobby and the explosion of it and the subculture and the obsession and the craziness that goes along with it, which, you know, since has blown up and there have been a lot of great books like, you know, Matthew Berry's book and some others that they've done that. Um, but I think, you know, mine was the first really of its kind that that was a narrative, humorous narrative nonfiction look at this incredibly popular and exploding subculture and multi, you know, billion dollar business. That's so cool. So, and it, and so it, it was... And it, it paid off and you, did that help you, you know, did you speak about that later in other like agency interviews? Is that, wh- how did, yeah. how did it pay off? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, it paid off in one sense cause I, I made a little money on the book, sure, um, sure. But, but it also, but it also paid off um, creatively too, because it, it, it started, it started the ball rolling on, on, you know, what I, I think I've been able to do over the, you know, the last two plus decades is sort of combine this again, love of sports and branding and yeah. kind of wrap it into um, this sort of package that sort of feeds, feeds itself. So, you know, um, I did the, the first, the fantasy football book, then I wrote a second book on semi-pro football. And as I was doing that, um, Arnold, where I had already worked two previous times, um, a friend called from Arnold and said, Hey, we're pitching parts of ESPN. Do you want to come back in freelance on the pitch? We can give your book out to the clients as like proof of, Hey, we were sports obsessives and blah, blah. So the fact that I had this tangible proof of sports knowledge and sports obsession that fit right into the ESPN wheelhouse, it was perfect timing. Cause then we, you know, we won the pitch and then that enabled me to go back to Arnold full time, um, to help run, yeah. portions of ESPN until 2009 uh, until coming to Christmas. So, and then at the time I was doing some um, uh, semi-frequent contributions to like New York times sports and some others. So I was able to kind of broaden my sports writing horizons on the outside of branding, but that then, you know, helped help these springboards into more branding. And, and it sort of goes to the, the question you asked about like how you get hired. I think doing stuff like that, um, that shows creative interest, that shows self-motivation and self-starting, um, I think is hugely important to employers because if they see like in in my case, and, and I'm not just like, you know, blowing smoke up my, up my own ass, but what I've been told is like, okay, we saw that it's hard to get published. You went full bore at that. You attacked that. It was a dream. You got it done. It was a goal you accomplished. Right. We, we can tell that you're someone who goes after a goal. And so I think if you do that kind of stuff as a creative or, or really anyone else, um, it'll help an employer see, all right, this, you know, he or she is self-motivated, self-starter, can really get after stuff that they, right. that, that, that they're passionate about. And it's not a stunt. Like it wasn't like, that's what you love. You, you, you gave up a well-paying job with a wife and I'm not sure if you had kids then, but no, we didn't. Thankfully I didn't, I didn't ruin their lives. Okay. <laughs> well, you, you still you still took a leap of faith. Um, that uncertainty you attacked it head on. That's much different than making a TikTok video um, and sending it and blasting it out to CEOs. I don't even know. Yeah. How that would work, but right. Well, if- I, I, and that's a that's a great. You make a great point because unless you're passionate about it, because look, I I was gonna quit this job and write this book, no matter if it ever led me back into advertising at all. I had no idea this was on 
was, you know, two, three, five, eight years, whatever down the road. All I knew was I love fantasy football. I love writing. I love sort of narrative nonfiction humor writing. Yeah. I'm going to do this regardless. Whatever happens, happens. And right. if it doesn't come off as passionate and authentic, it will come off as just a gratuitous stunt that's trying to tap into something that's, quote, you know, cool. And so I think back to your question, again, I think I think employers and recruiters and um, people in hiring positions in agencies and brands can sense when someone's truly authentically passionate about something and when they're just kind of putting on a, a, a certain mask or facade that they think the recruiter or person wants to see. You know what I mean? They can see through it. And they yeah. should be able to, they should, you should be, you should want an agency that can see through bullshit, right? If you're going to a cheap agency that doesn't care, then that's also a bad fit too. So they should press you and really poke at your passion projects. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and to that point, they will also want to know what your specific role is in whatever projects you're showing. So yeah. unless like, don't be vague about it. Don't, you know, don't be the person who, you know, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, I thought of a cool tagline, but I had nothing to do with any of the making or the writing or the production of anything. Wow. And you're trying to pass it off as your own work. Like that's the other stuff that gets around. Like everybody knows generally who worked on what. And if you don't have a very specific answer to either like, how'd you come up with that idea or what inspired you or what did you do on it, et cetera. If it's not, if it's not evident, um, mm-hmm. then be, be ready to explain that stuff. Right, right. Um, have you worked with any, um, you said ESPN, so have you worked with any celebrities or athletes? Yeah, a lot, a lot, actually. Um, you know, um, got everyone from every, yeah, let's see. I mean, it's been a long, well, I can, I, I remember my very first big athlete, which was probably in the mid nineties when Drew Bledsoe came to the Patriots and he was just a kid out of Washington state. Sure. I, I was back working on like, you know, McDonald's radio commercials and he did this, but he was the, the new spokesperson for McDonald's. So I luckily, luckily started out with a very good experience because look, working with athletes can be tough. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I just wrote this thing from Muse by Cleo ranking the top NFL players as actors, you know, from like the top 20. <laughs> and, and I got great quotes from, you know, a lot of people around the industry, creatives and producers and clients and whomever. Um, and there was a, a, a common refrain that look, athletes, you know, if you can avoid working with kids or animals, you know, ath- athletes could should be the third of that prong. Um, a creative named Dave Schiff uh, out here in Boulder said, and he's right, like athletes can be tough. So working with Bledsoe first was it eased me in because he was such a sweet guy. Yeah, he was a kid. He's 21. He's younger than you are right now, making millions of dollars and yeah. suddenly on TV and radio. Really nice. great guy. Um, but others through the years of uh, Peyton Manning. Um, uh, let's see, Sean Alexander, Gary Payton, um, let's see, UNC coach Roy Williams, uh, no way, Ryan, uh, God, Steph Curry, um, just, yeah, I mean, and a lot of ESPN personalities, you know, Peter Gammons, there's even one spot we managed to, I don't know, somehow we made a deal with the devil, and in one spot it was Matthew Berry, Peter Gammons, um, uh, let's see, MLB players, Carlos Lee, Bronson Arroyo, Gary Sheffield, and Getty Lee, the legendary founder and bassist of Rush. <laughs> it was this kind of booyah base of weirdness. Um, 
so yeah, it's been a lot of celebrities and a lot of athletes over the years. And, and luckily I haven't had a really shitty athlete experience there. There haven't been really many that I can remember any real divas or, and, and I found the most successful are usually the nicest. Like Peyton Manning couldn't have been better. He was tremendous. What were you doing with Peyton Manning? Was it uh, nationwide? No, no. We, um, at Crispin, we had Otterbox. We had Otterbox with, yeah. um, uh, and Peyton, it's a Denver company. So it was for yeah. his last couple of years in Denver and he was the spokesperson. So we did some really fun stuff with Peyton and Otterbox. But, uh, yeah, Peyton, um, if you check the article out on Muse, uh, it's, I think the title is like NFL players as actors, um, the rankings. Peyton is the number one, but there was a, a surprising number two. And I'm going to, I'm going to tease it like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's fair. And, uh, we'll, yeah. we'll have to keep that article. Um, you'll have to send me that. I'll keep that in the description of this episode. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. No, Muse, Muse is, if that, that's another thing actually I would recommend is, is read some of the industry trades. Um, yeah, especially Muse by Clio. It's part of the Clio Awards, and right. um, it's become a really, um, a really big platform for emerging talent, for stuff that's going on in the industry, for columns and opinion pieces, like the kind of stuff that I randomly write. And it's it's really it's really great. They're doing a great job there. I mean, and you've had um, you've had the accomplishments of you know winning Can Awards, Clios, One Shows, Kelly Awards, Effies. I mean that's incredible. I mean, so even all this hard work, all this passion, and you even said yourself that it's the concepting and being in that room where it happens and like, you know, pitching ideas, but I mean, it's probably really nice to be, to feel rewarded and appreciate yeah. all that work. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I don't, by no means do I pretend to, you know, have, have like wheelbarrows and tool sheds mm -hmm. full of awards, like a lot of, you know, people at, my stage of my career but yes i i've been happy to win you know win win all the requisite shows and awards over the years for certain things and yeah it's it's always great especially when when all your peers see work that you've done as right i mean i mean i i like work that works you know work that is effective as well as just being you know funny or cool for cool sake but look we all we all like making cool stuff and 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 having peers that we really respect respond to it um along with consumers so yeah it's, it's been great and given the fact that you wrote a book on fantasy football there's got to be some sort of competitive edge to yourself that um that you probably I, i'm i'm calling you out you gotta be pretty competitive <laughs> i i i am and I, I i think that yeah it's sort of a quiet more quiet competitiveness like i'm I, I'm not the guy in the sports bar you'll see with the face paint on arguing about who's better, Brady or Manning, or getting in someone's face. Like, I'm, I'm not a – I don't like sports shout radio and, like, you know, what, what sports debates have been – have become just, like, shouting over each other. I do – no, but, but I am super competitive. And I think that came out, um, you know, more – more in the second book, which was about playing semi-pro football. And I was a kicker and the punter on a team in Boston. And that's where I was able to kind of put that competitive spirit um, to work on, on the field and writing that book and wanting to, wanting to write that book just because it's, you know, it was a, a real kind of universal story about love of sports and bonding and how football, especially, um, you know, in a lot of cases can save people's lives and keep them off the streets. So, um, so you were also, a, weren't you a kicker? Yes. Yeah. I was a kicker and a punter for, for about three years. Um, I don't even know what I'm going to title this episode. 
<laughs> just I don't know. Call it call it like I don't know. Potpourri, bouillabaisse, uh, uh, giant pile of shit. I have, I have no, giant pile of no shit, idea. Bro. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, maybe not the last one, but but feel <laughs> hey, it's your podcast. Do, do no. what you got to do. No, it's gonna be, that's gonna be actually a struggle for me. Uh, so if you still got any copywriting left in you, maybe I'll reach Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. Um, wow. So we, I think we pretty much uncovered like the some big points in your career. Um, we got about 10 minutes. Um, I just like want to hear some rapid fire like advice you might have for students now. Um, internships are later in the summer, they probably just got done with them. The school years pretty much in full effect. I mean, what advice do you have for them to get that first job now, especially with, you know, COVID times, um, what should they be doing? What should they not do? We talked about the stunts. Is there anything that yeah. kind of hits your mind as I say those or ask that question? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think now, especially is a great time to, um, you know, re- really, really put your head down on what you're most passionate about and, and that doesn't mean, though, it has to be one thing, because I think um, students and, 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 you know, potential hires at, at that age, you can still try a couple things. You can still, yeah. like whether you're 18, 19, 20, 21, you know, you have time to make some mistakes. You can take some risks. So if you're, yeah. say, you think you want to be a copywriter and um, sure, hone those skills and and find an art director, designer, partner, and and work on your book and and come up with come up with um, concepts and ideas for your book that you can then start shopping around. But if you're not sure, don't feel like you have to pick one avenue and stick with it for the next forty years. You know, right. um, in in my case, I can just speak from my own experience. I always knew it was writing something with creative writing, and it just so happened that advertising was probably the closest I could come to at the time to you know, doing something creative and, 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 and being able to pay my bills. Um, right. Right. But, but, I, but I think that at, at that age, you can still take some risks and, and make some mistakes and worry about it, how it's going to affect your next 40 years. So, you know, I, I would say, um, you know, find, find people who inspire you creatively and surround yourself with them, be it on zoom or live social, socially distance. Um, sure. Yep find people who are positive and, and encourage you not to the point of delusion. You know, I think sometimes it can be harmful if um, especially creative people are being told by friends and loved ones like, Oh no, your book is awesome. Or yet this painting's beautiful or when it isn't, <laughs> you know, that can, that can give you a false sense of a false sense of confidence sure. and security that then could be blown up when you get into different meetings and they're like, well, actually this is not really quite there yet because of X, Y, or Z reasons. Yeah. So find, but find people who, who support you and, and you can trust as far as um, giving you constructive feedback, giving you encouragement. And, and this is also a time to like, you know, presumably after college, you generally know like, all right, who are my close friends? Who am I sort of like, eh, kind of tangential for me, you know, I was always one of those ones that had like a small group of super close friends. It wasn't like a thousand people. So yeah, try, try to sort of like, you know what, if you have to jettison some people in your life who are either dragging you down or negative or whatever, you know, kick them to the curb. You know, you, you those, those people are just going to yeah. weigh you down as you try to enter the workforce and as you try to do something you love. So, um, 
but again, I think I would just say don't 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 let fear or or aversion to risk drive you right now. Let let sort of curiosity and exploration drive you and you'll land in the right spot. Perfect. Thanks. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for listening to this entire episode of the Breaking and Entering podcast. This was Mark St. Amon, and he is awesome, like you can already tell from this interview. So please reach out to him. Um, Got to do my shout-outs now. Mikey Malarkey, audio technician. Buchan Zhang, our creative director. Kyle Moore, strategist. Audrey Nussbaum, co-host. And, of course, the, the Midnight Oil team from the University of Illinois. Can't do it without you guys, so thank you all for your help. We will see you all next week with another amazing guest. Have a good one.